in here. Turn those machines back on. Turn those machines back on. So unique. Wa-da-da, wa-da-da-da, dem. We drop bars every now and then, and these bars got the blues. Nothing but bad news running across the screens. What's it all mean? Rejections and corrections, ejections and inflections. A lot of people suggesting that it gets worse from here. Oh my, oh dear, no support down below. Government bonds got no flow. The risk premiums got us dreaming of the days when just believing was enough to spark a rally. Better tell Uncle Bruce, better call Aunt Sally. It's a different set of rules, and they require finesse. Calling all educated investors on board the investor. Wikipedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And let's keep those windows down because sentiment still stinks. Skinner never gets old, but this sell-off is getting a little tiring and it has taken the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 into correction territory, down 10% from highs reached last summer. Spiking bond yields, lackluster earnings, concerns about the wars in the Middle East and Ukraine, pick your poison, but they all point to the fact that risk is off the menu, except for Bitcoin, which is up more than 60% so far this year. Maybe investors are getting excited about those crypto-backed ETFs that could be coming to a broker near you in the new year. Or maybe there's nothing else in the capital markets to get excited about. When we look at the scores on the doors so far this year, courtesy of the good people at B of A Research, crypto is the only asset class that stands out up 60 plus percent. Gold is up more than eight and a half percent, and you can now buy your bullion at Costco along with your two dozen rolls of paper towel and your frozen chicken wings. Stocks as a group are up a little over seven percent despite the downdraft. Crude oil is up more than six percent, which is stirring up a lot of MA activity, and high yield bonds, cash, and the US dollar are also up but just single digits. That's your safety trade in full effect. But the big stocks, or the MAG7 as they're known, have not been as reliable as they used to be, and that's dragging down the market cap weighted indexes and most of our portfolios. We'll dive deeper into that in a few minutes with Shannon Sakosha. A lot of investors pin their hopes on third quarter earnings as a potential catalyst for equities, but those 10 Qs have blown an icy chill across the stock market. Since earnings season began a couple weeks ago, the S&P 500 has declined 9 out of 10 days, with 4 of those days clocking drops of 1% or more. Companies that have missed on the top or bottom line have felt the boot, trailing the S&P 500 by an average of 5.7% on their first day of trading post-earnings, according to Bloomberg Intelligence. That's the second worst showing since 2017. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one. This sell-off has been pretty severe, but if you pay attention to financial media like I do, it sounds a lot worse than it actually is. Let's get some perspective around here. For the first time since the 2022 bear market, six out of nine sectors have over 50% of their respective stocks down more than 20% from a 52-week high. That's broad-based selling. According to Sentiment Trader, the number of S&P 500 sectors with greater than 50% of their stocks in a bear market increased to the highest level since the fall of 2022. By the way, the S&P 500 bottomed about one year ago, so this sell-off is right on time. And across the U.S. equity markets, there are almost 700 stocks sitting at 52-week lows. Among the most widely held of them are Citigroup, Clorox, Delta, Ford, Hasbro, Medtronic, Penn Gaming, Sonos, United Airlines, and UPS. That's a pretty broad-based collection of big companies across industries sitting in deep bear markets. But know this, since 1928, the median year has experienced a 13% drawdown in the S&P 500. This current pullback is around 8.8%. That's pretty mild, even though it seems more extreme. Could it get worse from here? 
Absolutely. But big drawdowns don't usually happen in the fourth quarter. In fact, October 28th, which was Saturday of this past weekend, has historically been one of the best days in the history of the stock market. It was a Saturday, of course. And to be sure, October can be terrifying for stocks, but big gains usually come in the last two months of the year. In fact, some of the very best 10-day returns happen in November and December as portfolio managers do some window dressing and rebalancing. If you're considering selling now, you might miss some of that seasonal upside, so think twice before you bail out. Number two, if you paid close attention to the third quarter GDP report released last week, you too may have been surprised by the 4.9% increase from just a year ago. A lot of people were, except those who are watching consumer spending. Consumer spending, as measured by personal consumption expenditures, increased 4% for the quarter after rising just 0.8% in the second quarter. Inventories contributed 1.3 percentage points and gross domestic private investment surged 8.4% while government spending and investment jumped 4.6%. There's no doubt that both consumers and the government are overspending given record credit card debt and the nation's $32 trillion deficit. But on the consumer side, it's older Americans who are doing a lot of the spending and they, we, have been benefiting from higher bond yields and 4-5% rates on savings accounts and CDs thanks to those higher interest rates courtesy of the Fed. That's the flip side of rising interest rates, and you can see it playing out in the stock market, especially among what B of A calls boomer stocks. According to B of A, cruise lines have the heaviest exposure to boomers who represent nearly 40% of all cruisers. To wit, the S&P 500 Hotels, Resorts, and Cruise Line Index is up nearly 28% so far this year, even after the sell-off over the past few months. There's always a bull market somewhere, and this one is in boomer stocks. And number three. There's a whole ocean of oil under our That's apparently what the U.S. oil industry thinks as merger activity in the fossil fuel patch has been fast and furious lately. ExxonMobil announced a deal to buy Pioneer Resources a couple weeks ago for $64.5 billion, including debt, while Chevron is acquiring Hess for $60 billion. These are the biggest mergers in that industry since Chevron bought Texaco for $36 billion back in the year 2000. 23 years ago, there seemed to be an insatiable demand for oil as China and India were becoming global superpowers. Cut to today, 23 years later, and worries about peak oil and the impacts of global warming brought on by fossil fuel discovery and usage signaled the beginning of the end of big oil, or so we thought. For the oil giants like Exxon and Chevron, these acquisitions are not about consolidation in the face of waning demand. As Axios points out, they're about ramping up production as these giants believe that peak oil won't be an issue for another 20 to 30 years. With Pioneer, which gives Exxon more exposure to the Permian Basin in the southwest, the combined company intends to boost production by 700,000 barrels per year. As the ExxonMobil CEO told analysts when the deal with Pioneer was announced, quote, it's not about scaling back, it's about building up, end quote. As for peak oil, which many believe will happen around the year 2030, we might have to get used to the fact that demand will remain elevated for decades to come. For its part, OPEC sees oil demand increasing all the way through the year 2045. If OPEC is right, these mega mergers in the oil patch might just be getting started. Let's get set up for a very busy week ahead. We've got the Fed meeting on interest rates this Tuesday and Wednesday with the announcement slated for 2 p.m. Eastern Time Wednesday afternoon, followed by Fed Chair Jay Powell's press conference. There's only a 2% chance the Fed will raise rates this week, according to the CME's FedWatch tool, and about a 19% chance it will hike rates at its next meeting on December 13th. We might be at the terminal rate finally. 
Those rising treasury bond yields are definitely helping the Fed by adding some friction to the economy, but not necessarily in bringing down inflation. We learned on Friday that the Personal Consumption Expenditures Index rose 0.4% last month, clocking in at a 3.4% annual rate. That's getting closer to the Fed's target of 2 to 2.5%, but that target may not be reached for years to come. The labor market will also be front and center this week with the job openings and labor turnover survey, the JOLTS report for September, coming out on Wednesday, along with the ADP private payrolls report, which tracks private sector hiring. That will all set the stage for the Labor Department's non-farm payrolls report on Friday, the jobs report. The U.S. economy likely added just over 170,000 jobs in October after that blockbuster September gain of 336,000. We'll also be keeping a close eye on the UAW strike against the big three automakers, which is really down to just one, General Motors. The union agreed to terms with Ford last week and reached a tentative agreement with Stellantis over the weekend, but it did indicate it could expand its strike against GM to other highly profitable plants this week. And we have a full menu of corporate earnings to dig into, with widely held companies reporting third quarter results including McDonald's, Caterpillar, Pfizer, AMD, Yum Brands, PayPal, Apple, Starbucks, and DraftKings, just to name a few. Buckle up, it's going to be a busy one. Hey folks, it's Hunter Lewis, Editor-in-Chief of Food & Wine. This fall, we're launching the new Food & Wine Classic in Charleston with our partners at Southern Living Travel and Leisure, and we want to see you there. This incredible three-day culinary experience will showcase the hospitality, food, drinks, and culture of one of our favorite cities in the country. Join us September 27th to 29th to learn more from iconic chefs, share a glass with innovative wine experts, and get to know Charleston with one-of-a-kind experiences curated by the experts at Food & Wine, Southern Living, and Travel and Leisure. Tickets are on sale now at foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. That's foodandwine.com forward slash Charleston Classic. See you down in Charleston. This is not the way the fourth quarter was supposed to go. That is, if you believe in investing by the calendar. The late summer sell-off was supposed to clear the air for an October rally that would carry us into the end of the year with strong gains across the stock market. At least, that's what a lot of us might have thought. But a spike in Treasury bond yields, a new and uncertain war in the Middle East, dour forecasts about the strength of the economy, and some softness in corporate earnings has soured sentiment. Small caps are in a bear market. The Nasdaq and S&P 500 are both in corrections. It's hard to be a buyer in the face of all these walls of worry, but that doesn't mean we can't be educated investors. And we're going to bring our pal Shannon Sakosha back aboard the Express to help smarten us up. She's the Chief Investment Officer of NB Private Wealth and one of the smartest minds in the business and our very special guest on the Express this week. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Of all the concerns I just cited, which ones do you think are really behind the sell-off in the equity market? Is it really about the higher government bond yields putting the lid on risk right now? Absolutely. And it's not just about the higher government bond yields. It's about the question, how high can they go? Because if you go back to the first half of this year, we had this magnificent run for the magnificent seven for the first six months of this year. And that was based on the fact that there was an expectation of a ceiling on rates, not that the Fed was necessarily done, but that we knew where the tenure was going to top out. And right now, the sky's the limit, and that's creating a lot of concern in the equity market. Yeah, the bond market is not known for this kind of volatility, Shannon. You and I have been at this for a while, at least the likes of which we've been experiencing lately. What does that signal to you? Is that just the uncertainty about the economy? Is it, we know these rate hikes take a while to have an effect, and maybe we're not done seeing the effect of them? What is it telling you? I think 
it's a few things. Uh, number one, yes, I think that there was this expectation that historically, when you look back, 18 to 27 months is your transmission for an interest rate hike. However, we hiked so much so fast that everybody expected that that timeline would be shortened and that we would get more of that this year. So we're actually right around the normal time frame when we see transmission of interest rate hikes. The other thing is, is that we're in a, a really different from a fiscal perspective, a very different environment than we were. I mean, we talked about what Bernanke and the Fed did in terms of the balance sheet, you know, after the financial crisis. I mean, they looked austere <laughs> compared to what's happening now. So I think from that perspective, the starting point is almost as important as the finish line in this particular part of the race. Right. And for generations of investors, this is kind of a new thing, right? We went from ZERP, that zero interest rate policy, to rates keep rising and may they, they may not rise again. The Fed may not raise rates again if you believe the CME FedWatch tool. That doesn't mean they're going down from here. They may stay this way for longer than a lot of us thought. Do you think that's sort of behind uh, a lot of the confusion right now? Well, I think the one thing that you have to remember is that the absolute level of rates is not necessarily important in this environment as the starting point of where we came from, but also the fact that a lot of what's been happening in corporate America and households has been based on this expectation of these much lower rates that we weren't expecting, but that we got. And now we're anticipating to continue, which they're not. I think the higher for longer scenario, I think that that language is probably not that accurate in terms of what we really should be thinking about. We should be thinking about a higher than zero longer term structural rate. But I don't necessarily think that that delta, that spread between what the Fed funds rate is at and inflation, it can't remain at the levels it's at today or by the end of next year forever. And so there will eventually be a catalyst for the Fed to right size policy from a rate perspective. The challenge is, is that there isn't a lot of rationale or cover for them to do that today because of what's happening in other parts of the economy. Earnings, Shannon, were supposed to be a catalyst for equities to turn higher, at least one of them. Results have been pretty good. They're not necessarily painting a great picture. A lot of companies with their guidance going forward, given the uncertainty. So if it's not earnings, what might catalyze the stock market again? Well, you're right. I mean, I think one of the perhaps the bull arguments going into this quarter was that we likely saw the trough in earnings in Q2. And for both Q1 and Q2, earnings were better than expected. Results were better than expected. So we all started seeing and hearing about this management execution. We know that they haven't operated in this type of environment historically, but look at how great everything's going. Look at all the cost cutting. And we saw that especially in, in big tech, right? Tons of cost cutting that helps the bottom line, that helps them recapture some of that margin. The catalyst going into the third quarter was that, hey, this is the, the end. And so we're just expecting another better than expected earnings season. Perhaps we get that, that outlook that indicates that discrepancy between what we're hearing and seeing on Main Street is different from what Wall Street's telling us is going to happen. And the problem is, is that it's just been really inconsistent. Even the companies that are beating and doing better than consensus expectations, they're certainly not being rewarded. And now what we're seeing is that anybody who misses is being absolutely punished. And I think it's a really interesting dynamic for investors because in these environments over the last, say, 10 years or so, people have been buying the dip on things like this. You see a alphabet miss, you're buying that stock. 
you're just not seeing that those buyers come into the market right now. And I think it's because of a lot of this volatility that we're experiencing. But also, there's something to be said to the fact that we went from an era of Tina, there really is no alternative to, there are lots of alternatives, there are plenty of alternatives. And that includes money in the bank, right? CDs, high yield savings accounts, money market funds, money market accounts, and also treasuries, if you're willing to go out on that limb right now. So the fact that there are some options, you think that's giving at least big money, the institutional money, a little bit more of a choice of, look, I don't need to go out and take a risk right now with rates this high. And there's some options right now to park money. Do you think that's giving cover? Yeah, I actually think that's good. I mean, didn't we talk for years about the detriment of zero interest rates to savers? Didn't we talk about the fact that from a capital allocation perspective at corporations that they weren't really thinking about the best way to be utilizing their capital. They weren't thinking about the ROI. They weren't thinking about the investment because everything was free money. And then we obviously got the financial engineering that all the buybacks created. And so 17, 18, 19. So yes, I think there are alternatives. I think longer term, that's a positive, particularly for high net worth investors, for you and I on a day-to-day basis. It's great that we have an alternative to be able to put that money in the bank. And oh, by the way, if I'm sitting on a mortgage that I took out before this recent rise in rates, a 5% money market, that's better than what I'm paying on my mortgage rate. So I kind of feel like a bank at this point, right? (laughs) So I think that from my perspective, it's good that there's an alternative, but it also, to your point, is probably impacting this market behavior, this expectation of any time the equity market sells off, we're going to see this rash of buyers because historically, you were losing money, even in a low inflation environment, you were losing money sitting on that in the bank. And you really aren't in this environment, especially as CPI is coming down. Yeah, not, not a lot to lose by waiting and making no decision is also a decision that a lot of need to think about. So if you are looking to find returns or seek some alpha or some yield these days, where are you looking, not looking for particular stocks necessarily, but what part of the capital market do you think is going to have the strength at least for the next six months? I think the challenge here is that you really, in the at least on the equity side of the coin, if we learned anything from earnings this year, it's that quality companies with strong free cash flow, with a balance sheet, and with the ability to term out their debt, they're quote unquote sitting pretty in this environment. Sure, they have the same challenges, rising costs, rising wages, the inability to maybe go out and find the cheapest labor market now with geopolitical concerns. They eventually will have to refinance that debt. But I think those quality companies in different sectors certainly afford you some opportunity. And, you know, we've really seen a divergence this year. I mean, look at the traditional defensive sectors, areas like utilities and healthcare and REITs that produce a lot of cash flow. In that alternative environment where you've got cash producing that, perhaps investors haven't really looked to that because they haven't needed to, to garner the income on their portfolio. But there's some really interesting stories in those sectors that could potentially provide you with some both defense and offense when you think about energy infrastructure spending, when you think about all of what's happening with weight loss drugs and some of the innovation that's happening there and the likely, I mean, this is, you know, if you thought cholesterol drugs were big, there's a lot to be said for what weight loss drugs could do for the healthcare space, both positive and negative from a company perspective. The other thing that I would think about is in this environment where liquidity is at a premium. On the credit side, there's also an opportunity to look at 
higher quality credits. And so many investors, particularly in my world, are looking at things like municipals, right? And the tax equivalent yields, excellent in the municipal space right now. Many of those have not experienced the revenue deterioration that was anticipated back in 2020. And so if you think about just the overall balance sheet quality, corporations have it, households in many cases still have it, and municipalities have it. And so just really thinking about that is steering some of your investment decisions, like where is the money sitting and who has the flexibility from a capital perspective? That That's where I see the opportunities over the next six months. You were talking earlier about how investors aren't really buying the dips, especially on the bigger names when they're getting punished for missing their earnings right now. But it felt like for a long time, certainly last year and at other times, the big seven, the magnificent seven that everybody talks about, they seemed a lot like safety stocks and like safe haven stocks where the money just gravitated to no matter what was going on. That doesn't feel like the case anymore. So the fact that we were so overly concentrated in those stocks, some people thought of as problematic. But now nobody's really clinging on to anything in the equity market. They're perfectly willing to sit back. You think that's going to be a problem or is that a healthy sort of rebalancing of market breath eventually? So breath, I, I can't. Let's make sure that we put a really fine point on that. In order for us to see any sort of sustained recovery in the market, we need to have breath. And I think that that's where we just are seeing fits and starts of that. I think on the tech side, the challenge there is that if you look at those names that we're talking about, that MAG7 or down to whatever we are now after a couple of disappointments, if you took the names of those companies off the top of that balance sheet and you just looked at the fundamentals, the metrics underneath them, and you didn't think about the percentage of their cap weight, you'd probably want to own those stocks Like if you're a higher quality investor. It's just at the magnitude that they're owned in the index. And so from an active management perspective, taking an outsized overweight versus the benchmark at any of those is incredibly difficult because of their size. And so do I think that we can continue to perform well in the equity market if all of those languish? I think given just the structure of the market right now, that's going to be challenging. But I would say a little bit of a rotation from some of these names, trimming some of that capital and putting it towards other sectors is actually what we need to see to insulate us, I think, from these very huge swings that we're experiencing when we get some enthusiasm, exuberance, or disappointment and despair, depending on what part of the cycle you're in this year. You mentioned breath. We were talking about that as a key indicator. I'm wondering what else you think are the key indicators? What signals does Shannon Shakosha look for to say that things are either going to get a lot worse or things could start to get better? What are the key indicators you're watching for? So it's interesting and it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive for equity investors, but I think the bond market is obviously driving the narrative right now. And what you would expect to see in this environment is that and I don't want to get into a debate on whether it's one more by the Fed. It actually doesn't really matter. What the expectation is, is like when the Fed will begin to cut rates. And so when the Fed begins to cut rates, a lot of the money that's sitting in the short end of the curve is going to have to find somewhere to go. And so I actually, what I would see as potentially starting to limit the volatility in the market and then therefore provide a better foundation for investors who are focused on fundamentals to be able to make some better choices would be if people started buying treasuries again on the longer end and started to push out that duration in their portfolios. Because there's a desire in from institutional fixed income managers in particular, like they want to push 
for more duration. They understand the reinvestment risk that sits. Even here in a private client portfolio, we understand the reinvestment risk of having this sit in the very short end of the curve, knowing that those rates on the short end of the curve are going to go down. We don't have to talk about what's going to happen with the shape of the yield curve, how steep it could get. Those rates are going to come down in the short end. So at some point, you have to start buying back into the longer end. That, I think, creates a more stable environment in the bond market. And that can create, again, this second phase of digestion for the higher for longer scenario that can be the basis for fundamentals. Okay, what's not getting enough attention right now that you think we need to put a little bit more attention on? I think what we need to put a bit more attention on is what the implications are for a longer protracted recovery in China. So I think when we came into 2023, if we were talking in January of this year, we would have been talking about China recovery as a catalyst, and we would have been talking about manufacturing reshoring, and we would have been talking about earnings troughing this year and then being, you know, kind of the inflection point. We probably wouldn't have been talking about rates as much as we are talking about now. But I think the China narrative is important because if you think about what we've seen over the last several years is a significant amount of fiscal stimulus here in the US, obviously monetary stimulus all over the place. That stimulus from a fiscal perspective really hasn't happened in China yet. And so it's just starting. And I think that there could be implications, particularly as we're starting to see just a hint of life in the manufacturing sector globally, that hint of life could actually expand to be a positive tailwind if we see a resurgence in China. That resurgence in China would have to be driven by stimulus. But I think if we see a, a balanced stimulus in China with both consumer stimulus, as well as the industry stimulus that they're you know really known for from the government perspective, I think that actually could provide a little bit of a lift and a cushion, if you will, for the slowdown that we expect here in the United States, not necessarily a recession, but slowdown. So I, I think that's something that it has been pushed off to the back burner, given all the other things we're working on. But I think it's an important factor people should be looking at. Yeah, and the PBOC has the power to do that. And China, again, second or largest economy in the world or will be eventually. So great points, great things to pay attention to. All right, you know, we love our investing terms here at Investopedia and your writing and your blogs and your commentary is so full of good educational stuff. I'm wondering what's your favorite investing and finance term right now? Margin recapture is my favorite. So we talk a lot about growing earnings and peak margins and growing margins. But if you think about just the slippage in margin from higher wages, higher costs, transitory factors from the pandemic, there's an opportunity across a lot of industries and sub-industries to be able to recapture margin without necessarily having to do significantly increased cost cutting. And so if you think about top line, what happens when you're when there's inflation is your sales are going up because of inflation, right? And so we're going to start to see that top line impact fall away. And so how do companies drive earnings? They're either going to have to find more sustainable organic growth to drive top line, or they can think about recapturing some of the margin that they've lost over the last couple of years. And so instead of just focusing on which companies can grow the top line, also think about that combination of are there additional synergies that they can recapture from this 
previous disruptive dislocated environment and be able to apply that to their earnings on a go forward basis. Yeah, we love that term. Sounds like a major motion picture or something <laughs> that would look good on a hat. We're going to get you one of those. Shannon Sakosha, <laughs> the Chief Investment Officer at NB Private Wealth and one of our favorite folks out there. Thanks so much for coming back aboard the Express. We appreciate you. Thanks for having me, Caleb. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Rishikesh, who hit us up on the gram wanting to learn more about resistance and support. That's right, another daily double. And it feels right given that resistance and support go together like peanut butter and jelly in the world of technical analysis. According to our favorite website, Technical analysts use support and resistance levels to identify price points on a chart where the probabilities favor a pause or reversal of a prevailing trend. Support occurs when a downtrend is expected to pause due to a concentration of demand, and resistance occurs when an uptrend is expected to pause temporarily due to a concentration of supply. It's all about supply and demand. Resistance and support levels can be identified on charts using trend lines and moving averages. Once an area or zone of support or resistance has been identified, those price levels can serve as potential entry or exit points because, as price reaches a point of previous support or resistance, it will do one of two things, either bounce back away from the support or resistance level or violate the price level and continue in its prior direction until it hits the next support or resistance level. Great suggestion, Rishikesh. We need to keep our eyes on support levels this week for the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ, which are now both in correction territory. Another week of losses, and those levels may be breached, which could mean lower lows. We're going to let Dr. Julius Klein take us out this week. Dr. Klein was the Assistant Secretary of Commerce in 1929 when Black Tuesday occurred on October 29th of that year. After a brutal two weeks of selling, investors finally capitulated, sending the Dow Jones Industrial Average down 11.7%. But at one point during the day, the Dow was down as much as 18.5%. Klein took to the airwaves, it was just radio back then, to try to calm Americans down and assure them that our financial foundation was safe. Here's Dr. Julius Klein on the radio. In these days of stock market uncertainty, perhaps it is just as well to stress again the fundamental soundness of the vast majority of the economic activities of this nation. After all, the stock market is not the major barometer of business. I say that with all due regard for the admitted value of the services of the exchange, and with all due sympathy for the many who have lost and lost heavily in its recent operations. 93 years later, the same words are true. The stock market is not the economy, not even the best barometer of the strength or weakness of the economy. And as it turns out, Klein was way too optimistic about the strength of the economy back in 1929. The country sank into a deep depression that lasted through the better part of that decade. We have some big economic reports coming up this week, and if you look at them carefully, you'll realize that the economy is in a lot better shape than the stock market is telling us. Watch them both, but keep them both in their proper places. Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Shannon Sakosha for climbing back aboard the Express. We'll link to her blog and her social media accounts so you can take advantage of her insights as well. You'll find those in the show notes wherever you take the Express, along with all the other reports we cited in this week's episode. And you'll also find those on investopedia.com slash the Express podcast. Bookmark it. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.